science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Within 10 years, when was the first electric car introduced? If you know the answer to that question, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. That's the number to call for any question that you may have. You can also text us at 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, I discuss matters of science with you here every Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Today, right off the bat, I I have to talk about this AstraZeneca vaccine blood clot uh, business. Associations do not make cause and effect relationships. If you take a look in Europe and you look at countries where there are a lot of storks and nests of storks, and you look at the birth rate, you can make a very strong relationship. The more storks there are, the more babies are born. But that does not mean that storks bring babies. Similarly, there are far more cases of breast cancer among people who wear skirts. That doesn't mean that skirts cause the disease. Just because one finds blood clots in people who have also been vaccinated does not mean that the vaccine and the blood clots are related. In this particular case, the story is about the AstraZeneca vaccine that was developed in conjunction with Oxford University. Uh, The vaccine has been widely tested and it has been shown to be not quite as effective as the the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, vaccines, but It has also been shown to keep people out of hospitals and to essentially reduce the death rate to zero. So the vaccine works. There's no reason to stay away from it. Now, what about this blood clot business? Yes, someone noted that there was an incidence in blood clots among people who were getting the vaccine. I'm not sure how they noted that. But of course, the next question you want to ask Is the incidence of this condition any greater among the people who received the AstraZeneca vaccine than among the general population? And this has been looked into. And it turns out that the handful of cases that have been noted are equivalent to what one would find in the general population anyway. And then the question comes up, well, how come that nobody noticed this with the Pfizer or with the Moderna vaccine? I think the reason is because nobody looked for it. If if one were to do that, uh, I think you would find the same frequency of, of, uh, of the condition. But anyway, even if there were a slight increase in blood clot formation, I mean, obviously, <laughs> it is very, very slight because uh, 17 million or so people have been vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine and there have only been a handful of, of cases. So in any case, even if there were a connection, it is minute and the benefits greatly outweigh the risks. At this point, our best bet at curbing COVID-19 is with herd immunity that is arrived at either to vaccination or through immunity acquired by having had an infection. 
the more people we get vaccinated, the greater the chance of returning to normalcy. And uh, we also, of course, are concerned about the variants. Nobody at this point knows exactly how the variants uh, are going to be affected by the vaccine. Uh, at this stage, it looks like that even if there is some curtailment of the efficacy, the vaccines are effective against the, uh, the variants, just not as much as against the uh, original uh, wild version as that virus is, uh, is referred to. And uh, the variants only form when the virus replicates in an infected person. This happens because every time that the virus replicates, the RNA, its genetic makeup, uh, has the chance of making an error. And it is those errors that are responsible for the variants. The fewer people infected, the less likely the chance of developing problematic uh, uh, variants. So taking everything into account, the benefits greatly outweigh the risks. Our best chance of getting out of this mess is by vaccination. Do not refuse to take the AstraZeneca vaccine. It may not be quite as effective as the Pfizer or the Moderna, but it is effective enough. Remember that originally the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, was willing to take a vaccine that was 50% effective and distribute that. Here we're talking about over 90% for the Pfizer and Moderna and around 70% for the AstraZeneca. Now, how important is that difference between the 70% and the 90%? It is not all that conclusive because those numbers are actually based on relatively few subjects in these studies. To give you an example, in the uh, Pfizer study, we started out with 44,000 people, 22,000 in the experimental group, 22,000 in the placebo group. And then you wait until some people get infected and you see whether or not there are more infected cases in the placebo group than in the vaccinated group, and indeed there were. How many were we talking about? Where there were something like um, uh, 150 or 160 cases in the placebo group and only about eight or 10 cases in the vaccine group. So this is where the 95% efficacy comes from. But look, it's only based on about 160 people, which is not a huge number. Now it is statistically significant, meaning that it looks like it, isn't due to chance, and this is what is constantly being quoted. Now, of course, we have some further data from Israel where more than half the population has already been vaccinated, and the cases in uh, hospitals have dropped down dramatically, so we know that the, the vaccine works. All vaccines work. So let's not debate nuances of the differences between the vaccines. At this point, what is critical is to get as large a segment of the population vaccinated as is possible and is becoming more and more possible as the uh, producers are, are putting out more and more vaccine uh, into the marketplace. And uh, in, in Quebec, uh, vaccination rates are increasing. We just don't want to have a situation where people are refusing to get a vaccine because they want a better one 
you know, they want the Pfizer or the Moderna. Uh, this is not like, like buying a washing machine where you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible washing machine. <laughs> this is the question of either having a washing machine or not having a washing machine. And not having a washing machine is not a very good idea. So that's what uh, I have to say about uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I just urge you to make the right decision. And the right decision is to be vaccinated. Now, obviously, there are some cases uh, of, of people who do have to ask their physicians about the vaccine. Uh, there are some uh, cases, uh, you know, uh, people suffering from certain types of leukemia, for example, or uh, some types of uh, uh, immune disease where the vaccine may be contraindicated, or in cases of people who have been prescribed EpiPens for some sort of uh, aller allergic reaction. This you have to discuss with, uh, with a physician. Then, of course, there's the question of uh, vaccination not being done according to the exact schedule as the tests were done. That is in, in, uh, three weeks or four weeks, the second vaccine after the first, first one. In Quebec, as you probably know, we are not doing that now because there isn't yet enough vaccine to, to do that. So the idea has been to vaccinate as many people with one dose as possible before going to the second dose. And when you speak to the experts, they will tell you that it doesn't make much difference whether you get the second dose in three weeks, in five weeks, six weeks, or, or in, in two months, uh, based on what we know about uh, vaccines that have been uh, put out on the, on the market for other uh, conditions. I'm a great believer in listening to the experts, the virologists and the infectious disease people who do this morning to night who have forged careers in this, who understand the nuances, who understand that a mutation of a single amino acid in that spike protein may or may not make a difference and how it may make a difference. These are the people that I listen to and that I talk to. And, uh, you know, it's not a question of someone out there on the street saying, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can trust these vaccines. You have to have some respect for the science and the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of researchers who have spent their lives studying this kind of thing. And their word is worth more than your neighbor who might uh, have some uh, suspicions about the vaccines that are out there. All right. Anyway, that's, that's my uh, take on this. We're going to take a little bit of a break here, check traffic. And uh, after that, we'll be back and we're going to talk cocaine. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Before getting into cocaine, uh, verbally, I mean, uh, let's get to the lines. Lori. Hey, Lori. Um, I am 65 years old, and I recently had an AstraZeneca vaccine, and I was fine with that for all the reasons that you had mentioned. So I have a question for you, and this is just based on the difference in efficacy. Is it 
worthwhile, even if it was permitted and legal from a medical standpoint, to try and also get a uh, Moderna or a Pfizer vaccine, assuming that I'm not taking a spot away from somebody else. So I'm talking about after the general population has been vaccinated for the only reason to increase the, the efficacy, even if it's by 10%. I don't think anyone can give you an answer to that because nobody has studied that. And it's not even something that you can guess about because these are, you know, different technologies and um, you can't even guess about uh, whether or not there could be some adverse uh, interaction. So uh, I, I think the wise thing at this point uh, until further information somehow emerges is, is not even consider uh, doing that because uh, uh, it just hasn't been tested. And when you're mixing two substances that have not been tested, there's always a chance of something untoward happening. So I think this okay. is something one yeah. would play on the safe side. Okay. All right. Let's go okay. to Peter. Peter. Well, I was reading that... Uh... Uh, chances of blood clotting in general population is 1 in 1,000. And if you are over 80 years, the chances is 1 in 100. So I was, uh, I'm taking this blood thinner for the last six months because I'm over 80 years old. Mm -hmm. And if I take AstraZeneca, then would you say that my chances of having a blood clot will be zero? No, I don't think you can say that because uh, once again, you know, it, it has not been tested in in that fashion. So, when if you are on blood thinners for whatever underlying condition, you need to always check with your physician before taking any extra medication, and that includes uh, vaccination. You've already been vaccinated, or what? No, not yet. I'm still waiting for it. Right, and you you've checked with the doctor, given the fact that you are. For some no, I have not checked it. I have not checked it, but I'm going to check it next week because it is in April. Yes. No. This is something that you you need to discuss because you know there are underlying conditions that uh, would um, argue against taking the vaccine. But that's something that physicians uh, have to decide. But I still think the government should have said that people over 80 years should be taking uh, not AstraZeneca because there's uh, more chances of g getting a blood clot, as as I said, one in one. No, but as I explained earlier, it, there is not a greater chance. There isn't. It's, the chance is the same as in the general population. So I don't think that that is an issue. But in any case, you need to discuss uh, any prospective vaccine for when you have an underlying condition with your doctor. All right. Let me just uh, now get back to what I was going to talk about. It is cocaine, a 7% solution. Would you like to try it? That was the question directed at Dr. Watson by Sherlock Holmes. And uh, it was through Sherlock Holmes uh, and his aversion for boredom and wanting to divert his mind away from boredom by taking cocaine that people first heard about uh, this drug back in the uh, late 1890s. In fact, it was in 1890 that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the sign of four, and uh, that is where uh, that question was asked. Now, at that time, there was no big stigma attached to cocaine. 
Uh, the drug was widely prescribed by physicians as a stimulant, also as a local anesthetic. Now, it's true that the leaves of this uh, plant, uh, the botanical name is Erythroxylum coca, the leaves of this plant had long been chewed by natives of the Andes Mountains, South America, as sort of a diversion from the monotony of life. But the active ingredient was only isolated in 1855 by a German chemist Friedrich Geitke, who named the compound erythroxylin. And that name was a reflection of the plant's red berries, because this, uh, the root of this word, that is erythro, derives from the Greek for meaning reddish. And then uh, by 1859, Albert Niemann had developed an improved purification process, and he had renamed the compound cocaine. Well, soon cocaine was being touted by pharmaceutical companies as a wonder drug, and it came to the attention of a young Viennese neurologist, Sigmund Freud, who became an avid user and a proponent of the drug. In 1884, he published Uber Coca, a book in which he sang the praises of the drug, describing a gorgeous excitement, exhilaration, and lasting euphoria. He claimed potential use as a mental stimulant, treatment for asthma, for eating disorders, and even as an aphrodisiac. Cocaine may even have influenced his classic work, The Interpretation of Dreams, in which he described and interpreted his own reveries. Was his dream of seeing himself as a snowman that melts away, leaving only a carrot, was that induced by cocaine? For Freud, the carrot represented his penis and the melting, his anxiety about fertility. But to his credit, Freud also noted the anesthetizing properties of cocaine and that it should make it suitable for many further applications. Well, one of those applications was eventually realized by Freud's hospital colleague, Carl Kohler, whom he introduced to cocaine. Freud knew that Kohler was researching local anesthetics and told him how Niemann had originally described numbness of the tongue when he tasted cocaine. Well, Kohler had hoped to specialize in ophthalmology, so he was particularly interested in the use of local anesthetics that could be applied to the eye. After having shown that a frog's eye could be effectively anesthetized, he carried out his bold and infamous experiment of applying a cocaine solution to his own eye and then pricking it with a pin. He quickly presented his findings to the Heidelberg Ophthalmological Society in a paper lauded around the world, and this led to Freud calling his friend Coca-Cola. Kohler's discovery did not protect him from the anti-Semitism that polluted Viennese society at the time. And uh, eventually, he had to leave uh, Vienna. He went to the Netherlands. He did practice ophthalmology, eventually ended up in the United States uh, at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Uh, Conan Doyle himself was a physician, and he had a special interest in ophthalmology. And uh, this is why he uh, infused the 7% solution into the Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, stories. Today, of course, cocaine is still very much on our minds uh, because uh, of its uh, psychological addictive potential and the crime that is associated with its growth and its importing into uh, North America. And uh, the public first heard about uh, cocaine 
at least in the English-speaking world, through Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes' dependence on the 7% solution. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news uh, with CTV and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. The question that I left with was, uh, within 10 years, when was the first electric car introduced? And I'm going to introduce a second question. What element derives its name from the Greek word for sun? You know the answer. You give us a call. It's 514-790-0800. I think we have Sima on the line. Sima. Hi, Dr. Joe. How are you? Good. What's so, up? I have a question to ask you. So let's say if someone had COVID recovered, uh, and then would they be eligible for a vaccine or they don't need to take one because they already have some antibodies because of that? Right. I mean, I think they are eligible, but uh, frankly, I think they should go to the end of the line. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, they already do have antibodies. But uh, nobody knows so far how much protection those antibodies will provide, how long they last. Mm -hmm. So there is certainly no reason not to take a vaccine if you've had the uh, infection before, but you don't want to take it away from someone uh, who is uh, more, let us say, deserving of it at this point. Right. And also you could get COVID more than once, right? You can get it more than once. It hasn't happened often, but it has happened. Mm -hmm. And so, one last yes. question. Also, would people have to take the vaccine again, like after a year, like a flu vaccine every year? It seems like that is probably going to be the case where we're going to need boosters. Uh, of course, at this point, uh, we don't really know what's going on with the variants and mm -hmm. how effective the vaccine will be. And, uh, uh, you know, as, as I've been saying dozens of times every day <laughs> now in response to many calls, yeah. We do not know long-term effects until a long-term has passed. Makes sense. And, you know, and so far a long-term has not passed, so right. uh, we don't know. Okay? Okay, thanks. All right. I will go to Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre. Yes, hello, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Okay. The helium, that's uh -huh. the, the element. It's yes, the it is. The, the the uh, element helium derives its name from the Greek for sun, uh, helium from helios. That's the Greek term. And back in 1868, it was French astronomer Pierre Janssen who studied the light emitted by the sun's corona during an eclipse. And uh, looking through a spectroscope, we found the yellow line in the spectrum, and that did not correspond with any of the spectral lines known for the elements at that time. And uh, British scientist Sir Norman Lockyer suggested it was an element not yet discovered on Earth. And eventually it was discovered on Earth as a product of the radioactive decay of uranium and thorium. And in Utah and Texas, there are natural gas deposits that contain helium, and that's where we get it from. It's a very important um, uh, commercial product because uh, helium cold, uh, liquid helium is very, very cold, and it is used as the coolant in superconducting magnets, and that's what makes MRI technology uh, possible. There are many other uses for liquid helium because it makes metal superconducting. Uh, 
and um, uh, almost all of the helium today is is coming from uh, Utah and uh, and Texas. All right, so that leaves us with the other question about uh, when the first electric car was introduced within uh, 10 years. All right, we'll wait to see if someone comes up with that answer. But as you probably know, uh, coming up uh, this week is uh, uh, Passover, uh, starting to celebrate it uh, next uh, weekend. And uh, undoubtedly, the movie The Ten Commandments will be played. It's, it's a great movie. The special effects still hold up uh, very well. So let me address that for uh, a moment. Because <clears throat> uh, faith and science generally walk along different paths, although sometimes they intersect. Uh, as when scientists muse about finding natural explanations for biblical events that appear to be supernatural. The Ten Plagues of Egypt which led to Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery, are intimately connected to the Passover story. Now, this is a story, of course, that comes uh, from, from the Bible. Uh, it is not coming from history books. We don't have any evidence of the Israelites actually having been slaves uh, in Egypt uh, and uh, certainly wandering through the desert for 40 years would have left some mementos in terms of pottery and other relics, none of which has ever been found. But anyway, uh, we do not look at the Bible as a historical document. Nevertheless, it is interesting to uh, think about it. The final plague uh, in uh, the sequence of, uh, of the 10 plagues was the slaying of the firstborn of Egypt by the angel of death. And of course, the firstborn of the Israelites were passed over. This is where the expression Passover comes from. Is it possible that the plagues can actually be explained by some sort of chain of natural phenomena triggered by changes in the climate or by some sort of environmental effects? <clears throat> Climatologists studying the ancient climate at the time have discovered the dramatic shift in the climate in the area some 3,000 years ago, which is the suggested time for the exodus. By studying stalagmites in Egyptian caves, they have been able to rebuild the record of the weather patterns. Rising temperatures could have caused the River Nile to dry up, turning the fast-flowing river that was Egypt's lifeline into a slow-moving and muddy watercourse perfect for the first plague, the Nile turning to blood. The hypothesis is that the color change could have been the result of a bloom of toxic freshwater algae known as Oscillatoria rubescens that is known to have existed 3,000 years ago and still causes similar effects today. The algae multiply in slow-moving warm waters with high levels of nutrition, and when they die, they stain the water red. The multiplication of the algae could also have set in motion the events that led to the second, third, and fourth plagues of uh, frogs, lice, and flies. The toxic algae could have forced the frogs to leave the water, causing them to perish on the dry land. Without predators to check their growth, flies and insects would have flourished. Since insects carry disease, livestock and people could have been affected, explaining the plagues of animals dying and humans contracting boils, possibly through the spread of anthrax bacteria. Another major natural disaster is thought to be responsible for triggering the seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues that bring hail, locusts, and darkness to Egypt. 
One of the biggest volcanic eruptions in human history occurred when Thera, a volcano that was part of the Mediterranean islands of Santorini, exploded around 3,500 years ago, spewing billions of tons of volcanic ash into the atmosphere. Volcanic ash can trigger hailstorms, and ash can also cause clouds to release their water content and wet weather for fosters the growth of locusts. Volcanic ash could also have blocked out the sunlight, causing the plague of darkness. What evidence is there for this? Pumice, which is stone made from cooled volcanic lava, has been found during excavations of Egyptian ruins, despite there not being any volcanoes in Egypt. Analysis of the rock shows that it came from the Santorini volcano, providing physical evidence that the ash fallout from the eruption at Santorini reached Egyptian shores. The cause of the final plague, the death of the firstborn of Egypt, has been suggested as being caused by a fungus that may have poisoned the grain supplies of which male firstborn would have had first pickings and so been first to fall victim. Or it could have all been divine intervention. Who knows? Nevertheless, it is interesting to speculate because it gives us a little bit of insight into science. The volcano, volcano at Santorini is really a very interesting one, and I had the uh, opportunity to see it a few years ago on, on a, a trip to Greece in the days when trips were still possible. And uh, it really is uh, its an amazing scene. Uh, the volcano is not active now, but you see uh, where all of the, the ash had settled and developed into, into rocks. And it's, it's like a, a landscape that I've never seen anywhere else before. And it's uh, surrounded by the crystal uh, blue waters. Uh, Santorini is really, really an amazing place. And who knows, it may even have played a role in the 10 plagues. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. The I've got a text question here uh, from someone who's uh, said to have the Moderna vaccine and wants to know because of an allergy to methyl isothiazolinone, uh, whether that's a problem. Well, methyl isothiazolinone is a preservative. It is used in a large variety of cosmetics and uh, there's uh, no connection that uh, I know of two vaccines, so this would not not disqualify you from getting the uh, vaccine. Uh, at this point, uh, the thinking is that it is people who have been prescribed EpiPens for some allergy who have to be concerned about an allergy to the vaccines. Also, I had a, a, an answer to my question about the first electric car. That answer proposed 1910. Well, I think you would be surprised to find out that it was long before 1910. It was around 1835 that Robert Anderson in Scotland introduced what was called the electric carriage, and it relied on rechargeable batteries. 
And yes, batteries were around in 1835, thanks to Galvani. But this uh, vehicle was heavy, slow, expensive, and it had to be frequently recharged. But believe it or not, around the year 1900, electric cars outsold all others. And then, of course, the gasoline engine was introduced, and uh, that put an end to electric cars until quite recently. And now, of course, they are the future. Where would we be without cars? Well, we'd still be walking or riding horses or whatever, bicycles. And cars themselves were introduced long before the electric car. That takes us back to 1769, the very first self-propelled vehicle. And that was a tractor invented by a French engineer by the name of Nicolas-Joseph Sugnot. And that was powered by steam. Steam engines had been uh, developed. And uh, this was a very, very large tractor. It was used by the French army to haul artillery. The speed at which it moved was only about two to two and a half miles per hour. It had three very large wheels and uh, it had to stop every 10 to 15 minutes to build up steam power. The uh, year after, that is in 1770, uh, Sunyo actually built uh, something that was designed to carry four passengers. It was a steam-powered tricycle. And in 1771, Sunyo drove one of his road vehicles into a stone wall. And thereby, he has the distinction of being the first person ever involved in a motor vehicle accident. But I think it's, uh, it's quite surprising to find out that uh, cars, really self-propelled vehicles, were around in the 18th century. We have come a long way from there and uh, we've virtually perfected the uh, uh, automobile. I mean, these days when you buy a new car, it just runs and runs, and very rarely do you have to repair it. All right, let me just switch to another topic here that has been in the news, and that is hydroxychloroquine, uh, which, of course, was controversial. I think the controversy now, although it's being kept alive by some people who are not up to date on the science, most of that controversy has, has dissipated. Uh, but hydroxychloroquine, while it's not effective against COVID-19, uh, raises the question about its historical role uh, as being effective in the treatment of malaria, a disease to which we do not give much thought as we sit in the comfort of our North American homes. Yet this scourge has probably killed more people than any other disease in history. Long ago, the Romans realized that the affliction was particularly common in swampy and marshy areas and concluded that it must be caused by the noxious vapors being released by decaying vegetation. Hence, they called the disease malaria, from the Latin for bad air. Once the Romans thought they had identified the cause of malaria, they took appropriate action. Swamps and marshes were drained. Pretty soon, their efforts were rewarded. The incidence of the dreaded disease decreased. Actually, though, they should have called the illness malmusca for bad fly because it is really caused by a parasite transmitted by the female mosquito. 
This parasite enters the bloodstream, invades red blood cells, and triggers the fever and chills characteristic of malaria. Unwittingly, by draining swamps, the Romans had reduced the breeding places of the parasite carrying mosquitoes. The first effective treatment for malaria was discovered by native tribesmen in Peru, long before Europeans settled in America. They had made the chance observation that swallowing the bark of a certain tree which grew in the jungle could cure swamp fever. Natives had been regularly availing themselves of the bark cure by the time first European, the wife of the Spanish viceroy in Peru, known as the Countess of Chincon, was treated with the bark in 1683. The Countess has been immortalized through the name given to the wondrous tree, Sanchona. Uh, Jesuit missionaries who had come to civilize the natives of the Amazon region learned about the miraculous properties of the bark and introduced it into Europe. They were eminently fair about the distribution of what came to be called Jesuit bark, and the poor received it for free, but the rich were charged the bark's weight in gold. The new medicine did not meet with success everywhere. During the 17th century, Protestants thought that the bark extract was part of a Catholic plot to wipe out Protestantism. Oliver Cromwell died of malaria rather than take what he called the devil's powder. But when King Charles II and his son of Louis XIV were cured of malaria, acceptance of the use of cinchona bark became general. By 1820, the active ingredient in the bark was isolated and named quinine from the Indian expression quinquina or bark of barks. Eventually, a number of quinine analogs were synthesized with a view towards greater efficacy and reduced side effects. One of these, introduced in 1955, was hydroxychloroquine. So now you know the background to that story. And if you want more stories and more up-to-date information on what is happening in the world of science, including, of course, lots of stuff about COVID-19, check out our website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS for Office for Science and Society. You can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter that will bring you informative and entertaining news every week, appears at 6 a.m. every Saturday morning in your inbox. But right now, it is time for us to disappear because once again, we have run smack out of time. But of course, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.